Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Generation Jihad. I'm Bill Raggio, and I'm here with my friend, colleague, and partner in crime, Tom Jocelyn. Hey, everybody. Okay, so this week uh, we're going to cover several topics. There was a lot of news out this week, a lot of things that we wanted to discuss, and uh, instead of devoting an episode to one, we figure we're just going to do a quick roundup on on four important topics. We're going to discuss uh, the the shooting at Pensacola and what the FBI has discovered about the shooter. There's been another uh, attack uh, in Corpus Christi. Um, we have the Inspector General's report on Al Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, and additionally, Mullah Habiatullah, who's the Emir of the Afghan Taliban, he uh, issued an Eid statement, and we're going to discuss what he said, what he said about uh, governance in Afghanistan. And with that, we're going to get right into it. Um, so first, we're going to talk about the Pensacola shooter. The FBI has had a breakthrough in this case on Mohammed Saeed al-Shamri and his ties to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Tom, talk to us about what the, what the FBI has discovered, what they've told us this week. So the Pensacola shooting took place in Naval Air Station Pensacola on December 6th of 2019, so several months ago now. And the terrorist, and he was identified as a terrorist pretty quickly, uh, named Mohammed Saeed al-Shamrani. He's a Saudi. He's a member of the Royal Saudi Air Force. He was here as part of a joint training program in the U.S. And the reason why he was identified as a terrorist pretty quickly is the FBI was able to examine his social media posts, which were not ambiguous. He was pretty pretty loud and proud about his belief in al-Qaeda and, and, and proclaiming sort of his uh, jihadist ideology. Um, he would paraphrase Osama bin Laden. You know, some of his posts, according to the FBI, was echoing Anwar al-Awlaki, the AKP cleric who inspired and directed terrorist plots throughout the West. So very quickly, they were confident in saying this guy was a, a jihadi in terms of ideology. But they didn't know uh, whether or not he was actually affiliated or part of an organization or answering an organization at all. And part of the reason they didn't know that was that he had these two iPhones. One was an iPhone 7 Plus, I believe, and the other one was an iPhone 5. And the FBI, he, Shamrani, El Shamrani, actually shot with his gun. He shot the iPhone 7 Plus, according to press reports. And then he did something to try and destroy the iPhone 5 as well. So he couldn't, the FBI couldn't access what was actually on the phones and figuring out if he was communicating with anybody. So this battle ensued with Apple, this war of words and rhetoric where the Department of Justice, we're going to get into this bill. I think you and I are, yes. are pretty pre, are pretty into, uh, we, we don't want the government snooping on our communication. So we'll, we'll get into this. But the, the, the government basically wanted to force Apple or was trying to coerce Apple publicly anyway to break the security on its own phones, crack the security on its own phones so they could see what Al-Shamrani was saying or who he was communicating with. Apple refused, as it has in the past. Apple did in the past when it came to San Bernardino terrorist attack in 2015, December 2015. The terrorist couple responsible for that had an iPhone, an older iPhone, that Apple refused to crack security on. And so this is an ongoing sort of uh, uh, tussle or, or uh, tug of war between the government and Apple over you know basically where that line is between security and privacy. So in any event, in early February, AQAP, the, the emir at the time, Qasem al-Raimi, who was killed a few weeks earlier in a drone strike in Yemen, comes out with a video that's very much proclaiming AQAP's quote-unquote full responsibility for uh, this terrorist attack, claiming Mohammed al-Shamrani as their, their guy, saying he was in effect a sleeper agent who plotted uh, meticulously for several years and was waiting to strike. He was bouncing around from one base to another, waiting for his opportunity. And so that basically got the FBI, it put the, put the investigation into a new realm. When, when this was such a strong claim of res responsibility, the FBI then had to say, well, wait a minute, there really may be more to this. Now, there were some people, you, you and I, Bill, talked to people or talked to people who talked to people, so either secondhand or firsthand, who were sort of poo-pooing that AQAP video and were saying, oh, you know, there's nothing to it. They're just trying to claim responsibility for a terrorist attack. 
Well, the FBI now in this breakthrough, when they finally got in Al Shamrani's phones, they find out that he was actually, of course, not only had he been a, a part of the AQAP web all along, he had been corresponding with AQAP operatives right up till the night before his terrorist attack in Pensacola. And this terrorist attack left three U.S. sailors dead, wounded eight others. So here's a guy who was not just inspired by AQAP, but was accepting and, and taking some level of direction and guidance via most likely encrypted messaging applications on his encrypted phones. And so that's why there's been a breakthrough in this investigation. And we could talk a little bit more about what that breakthrough entailed. But this is an example of where, you know, what Bill and I have talked about for so long. You know, more than 18 years after 9-11, Al-Qaeda got a sleeper agent onto a U.S. military base and executed, yes, a small attack, but still attack on a secure facility. And it raises a lot of questions, right, Bill? Yeah, it sure does. And Tom, you know, like you, you, you nailed it. I mean, it's yet again another attempt to what you so perfectly have coined the term disconnect the dots. I mean, all of the evidence of his ties to AQAP were, were pretty public. His own statements, AQAP statements. And think about it. I mean, when was the last time Al-Qaeda claimed credit for attack that it actually didn't execute? I can't even think of one. The so Islamic there's, one dubi- there's one dubious AQAP claim. I was thinking about this too, Bill. It's funny yeah. you raise this, right? So I was just thinking about this last night as I was uh, not sleeping, which is my usual these days. Uh, the uh, I was tossing and turning. One, one of the um, and by the way, folks, we're recording this uh, a few days before Memorial Day. We wish you a happy Memorial Day. You're going to hear this after Memorial Day, so hopefully you had a uh, safe and, and and healthy Memorial Day. Um, but in any event, when uh, you know, I was thinking about when did AQAP last claim an attack that they didn't have responsibility for? There was a car. There was a, a separate like a plane out of the UAE or something like that. I, I forget, and I didn't look it up before doing the podcast, so forgive me, folks. But there was one claim that seemed to be dubious that they claim responsibility for an attack on a cargo plane of some sort years ago, and that may have, may not have been the case. But otherwise, Bill, you're right. I don't. They don't usually claim responsibility for something they didn't do. So... You know, and and the video that they put out was pretty elaborate. It had yes. all these no, had these notes and it had his will. And we couldn't say at the time. You and I talked about this, but we couldn't say at the time that those were definitively uploaded from the terrorists himself. Um, you know, there was possibility they got them somehow online elsewhere. But that was all suggested that they were actually in contact with this guy. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, and, and my point being, yes, the FBI does need to establish those links for a court of law. But I think we, you know. It's a reasonable after that information's out there to assume, yes, he is linked to AQAP until we're given evidence contrary to that at that point in time, right? When we see what AQAP has said, when we see what what he has, uh, what Al-Shamrani himself has said, you know, there's very little reason to doubt that, particularly what we have known. And it's not like this is a type of attack that AQAP hasn't executed in the past, you know, looking at, at the, you know, the attack on Charlie Hebdo and, you know, so... Yeah, this is just a so uh, one one other point here I wanted to make that you know we discussed this on the uh, podcast a couple weeks ago on Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as well as on the drone strikes. I mean, eighteen plus years after nine eleven, we've had targeted killings. AQAP has supposedly been leadership has been decimated and and weakened, and yet and yet you have that resiliency factor. They're still able to carry out an attack. On the United States, I mean, they're still plotting, they're planning. Yes, things are more difficult for them. Yes, they they have problems with you know leadership because the U.S. is killing them. But frankly, I my opinion is we're not killing them fast enough. And you know, 
look at, I mean, we didn't get El Ramey until after this attack. And, you know, it's, it's difficult for us on the outside to know, but did we make an extra, extra effort to target him? Well, you and, I, you, and, you and I heard that. You and I heard through our yeah. channels that there was, after after Pensacola uh, terrorist attack, they that there, was a little, yeah. there was a little renewed urgency. Not that they weren't hunting him beforehand, uh, but there was a little renewed urgency to get Qasem El Ramey, this Al-Qaeda veteran who, who first joined Al-Qaeda in the 1990s in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda identifies him for, as, when he's a young man in his early 20s, as somebody who had leadership potential right away. Um, you know, he, he, he's dedicated to the cause even after uh, uh, he had a short stint in prison in Yemen. He gets out. He helps rebuild AQAP and relaunch AQAP in 2009. But, you know, we've we brought this up in previous episodes. This is to your point, Bill, about resiliency. This is a guy, Qasem Ramey, whose career started in the 1990s. He was part of the senior leadership cadre of AQAP from 2009 on, where we finally get him 11 years after Eleven years after AQAP is refounded in the you know uh, in, in by merging the Saudi and Yemeni wings of, of Bin Laden's empire, he's killed in early 2020. And you know this guy's had a long time to put down roots, recruit people, train people, indoctrinate, help indoctrinate others, lead an organization. You know it, it's tough to actually gauge how effective he was as an overall leader. You know, uh, there's a lot of variables to that. I think, you know, you can see in and certainly AKP has a very hard time inside Yemen itself with a complex multi-sided war, as we've talked about, you know, referring to it as a Game of Thrones type situation. Although we, we can't really map each one of these guys onto the characters, although we have to do that, I guess, in one episode. That would be fun. But, yeah. Uh, but in any event, um, you know, bottom line, this guy was around for a long time. We've, we've The U.S. has had success in t- taking out senior leadership, has a success in suppressing plots, for sure. But the reason why this is an endless war, as we talked about in the last episode, is because it's an endless jihad. Nobody could tell you how many more of these guys are waiting in the wings to take over, right? Yeah, and Exactly. And so think about it. He's f- from the 1990s until 2020, Qasem al-Ramey was active. He'd be the equivalent of a four-star general or, let's say, a cabinet secretary, secretary of defense. Like, But I think a general is probably more, uh, you know, a better comparison, who pretty much stuck to the same theater. Of war by the time he was killed. Our generals hop from here to there to there. So he certainly has the expertise in understanding, yes, AQAP has its issues and there's problems in Yemen and whatever. But, you know, it took us 20 something years to kill a guy who, you know, rose to the level of a four star general and was organizing. Now, and, and additionally, there was a Abdullah al Malki. Um, he was targeted yeah. him after. The um, also, yeah, and who the heck is who the heck is he, he? Tom? Tell us about him. Yeah, who the heck is he? Nobody's talked about right. him before. This Abdullah Al Maliki. I didn't see anything on him beforehand. All of a sudden, he pops yeah. up as one of their external operations guys. You know, I, you know. Here's the thing, right? Go go to go to one of the Google online news searches or whatever, and try and look up Abdullah Al Maliki and AQAP before this yeah. last couple of weeks of the Pensacola shooting. Tell me what you come up with, right? He's a ghost, Tom. I, yeah. I was right. inquiries from several reporters. Bill, what can you tell us about Abdullah Al Maliki? Yeah, I can tell you absolutely. I mean, and we're this is our business, Tom. Yeah, this is these are those in the wings that we never hear about. These are the, you know, this is what we, you know, actually we didn't coin the term. I believe it was the State Department that called it Al Qaeda's deep bench. But it's a bench that's often invisible to us. It's in that black hole. Yeah. No one knew who he was. The military, he probably only became 
the U.S. military, my guess, and, and intelligence probably only became aware of him after Pensacola because he, they probably intercepted communications from him. Or it's one of those things Russia. where, or it's one of those things where he, you know, his nom de guerre is known, and it's sort of in intelligence channels and reporting. Yeah. But his importance isn't really understood until after Pensacola. You know, that's that's the other possibility. You know, yeah, exactly. You but it, it, and the yeah. point being, you know, these. This is what we're dealing with. And so right? Abdul I mean, al-Maliki, just for uh, our listeners can understand, this is a guy who was in Yemen who was communicating with Mohammed uh, uh, Saeed al-Shamrani uh, right up till, uh, you know, right up till, well, we don't know exactly how long he was specifically communicating with al-Shamrani, but we know he was communicating with him. And we know that other, either he or other AQAP operatives were communicating with al-Shamrani right up till the night before the attack. So, you know, this is the type of thing that's going on through these, exter- you know, these secure communications that um, uh, you know, it's highly problematic for CT officials. But two quick things on this: one, Bill, you mentioned these guy, uh, guy Qasem Al-Raimi, is the equivalent of a, a four-star general, right? Well, you know, here this gets to the basic epistemological problem we've harped on for all these years, and it gets a little frustrating, right? How many four-star generals does AQ have? Who's in that leadership cadre? How are they right. structured? What do the committees look like today? How many guys do they have in leadership? Nobody's even nobody's publicly saying. I'm sure there's some assessment floating around inside the U.S. somewhere, but there's such utter confusion over. You know how to even define Al Qaeda after all these years. It really, uh, you know, makes gives me a really a dim impression of everything. I mean, we don't. The bottom line is, you don't really know how many Qasem Al Ramis are out there, or how many. You know, he's how, how effective he was internally in the organization, and how many replacements he has waiting in 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 the on deck. You know, yeah, I, I, that is just in a nutshell. That is the problem. That's the the what that's what we struggle with day in and day out in our work and you know yeah we look we know there's individuals in intelligence and military who look at these things properly but it doesn't filter upwards and that's really really a a, a massive problem and in fact i mean look at the scandal at centcom right several years back where they were um changing reports on afghanistan and iraq in order to give a better rosy assessment and you had a basically a revolt and nothing no one ever paid a price for that at centcom because you and you just before that because you and i are are pretty much um you know we consider ourselves patriotic americans who believe in our you know we want to have our protect our civil liberties and there's a real concern here when it comes to you know, we, we basically are strong, we want to be strong on the security front, you know, neutralizing threats like AQAP, but that doesn't mean we want anybody snooping around on our phones or have the ability to snoop around on our iPhones or anything else. And one of the things that came up here, Bill, was this idea that, um, you know, Apple issued a statement after the, so the Department of Justice and the FBI come out and they hold a press conference. This is, we're, we're recording this Saturday, Memorial Day weekend, folks, and this was Monday before this. There's a big press conference with the Department of Justice and FBI come out and they say, that uh, they're critiquing Apple for not giving enough help, enough support in the investigation. Apple disputes that and says that they did support and provide data in various ways. But in Apple's statement uh, rebutting what the Department of Justice and FBI were saying, they said, you know, we're not going to put in a back door because you can't guarantee, you know, into our phones, our devices, because if you have a back door, which sort of circumvents the normal security password protections and other security measures that are put in place, if we do that, then you can't control who uses them. You know, bad actors can use them. Um, you know, and and they're right. I think, right, Bill? I agree. Right? I, right? Listen, you know, I I I mean, I understand the frustrations of the Department of Justice and the FBI. I get it, but at the end of the day, I I'm concerned about our freedoms. At the end, look, I, I go back to we want to they want to get into monitoring our communications and whatnot. Yet often. I, I go back to the, this is a, a, 
I go back to the Boston Marathon bombings. One of the Sarnoff brothers posted on Facebook. Remember, he was trying to get uh, citizenship. And the FBI reviews his Facebook account. And they see that he has videos from posted from Doku Umarov, who was the head of the Islamic Caucus Emirates, which is yeah, a one of, branch. One of the videos was was celebrating the rise of the black flag in the Khorasan. The, yes. The, you know, which is exactly. a key part of the mythology. And they look at that, and they say... He's okay. He's good to go. We could give them citizenship. If they can't determine, if they can't analyze this on an open source basis, why am I surrendering my freedoms for them to crack our communications? I mean, I, I realize well, that here in this case, Al Shamrani. I mean, listen, he had plenty of social media that you could have ex- inspected yeah. that that showed there was a problem. He on, on September 11th last year in 2019. He posts something like the countdown has begun or something as he's visiting the September 11th memorial. Now, of course, you could say, well, hindsight, you know, in 2020, you can go back and say, now you know what he's talking about. But I'm sorry. If I see a Saudi military, you know, officer yeah. or trainee pilot, you know, visiting a 9-11 memorial where a bunch of Saudis were involved in this attack on on, on America. And he's, tw- he's posting on social media, the countdown has begun. If I have, if I, if I have a guy like that here, I'm going to make sure I'm scooping up his social media, first of all. Second of all, because I'm going to have constant uh, surveillance and, and security on who I'm bringing in here after all this, you know, um, that's the, where I want the surveillance, not on Americans, right? Yeah. Or, or the ability to surveil Americans, and then yeah. and then you know get it right, you know, get what he's doing. But you know, one other quick thing on what you're saying, Bill. There's a, there's a key point here, though. The key distinction is so to the Department of Justice FBI's credit, or at least uh, in favor of their argument, the difference here. And I'm not supporting the argument. I'm just saying the difference here is that they're talking about encrypted messaging and secure communications with AKP operatives overseas, and they're claiming that their investigation was hampered by the fact that it took the FBI over four months to get into the phones. That's what they're saying. Um, you know, look, I, to me, that's a secure, that's a trade-off that we're going to have to make. I'd rather, yeah. you know, I, I just don't, I'm just not comfortable with the U.S. government having the ability to use a backdoor to get in my phone or anybody else's phone uh, because it's not, it wouldn't be just be the U.S. government, whatever, you know, concerns you have about your own liberties here in the U.S., but it would be China, the Chinese government, you know, Chinese Communist Party, the Russians, North Koreans, Iranians. Anybody can use that backdoor then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once you open Pandora's box there, there's no closing it. And and that really ultimately is it. If, if the FBI wants to crack it and work, make them work to do, to do the work, I'm sorry. I, there's certain there's certain trade-offs we have to hear. And, and we've given up a lot of personal liberty, liberties since 9-11. And I don't believe that we should surrender them easily. No, I agree. And the other thing is, you know, I talked to a senior counterterrorism official or, or – a person I'll describe as senior counterterrorism official some years ago. This is somebody who was involved in stopping terrorists and terrorist plots. You know, uh, to my mind, somebody who's very well respected and is very well respected. Um, and this person, I asked this person about the backdoor issue on the phones. Now, this would make this guy's, and is a guy, I just slipped up. I was going to try not to say guy or gal, you know, but it is a guy. Uh, this make this would make his career a lot easier to have this type of thing uh, sure. in place. And he said, absolutely not. He wouldn't do it because for all the reasons we're talking about. Now, he had a whole... He had a whole sort of system that he would put in place to, to do this, and I'm not going to try to go through all that. And I'm sure there are other people thinking about this out there, and I'm sure there's some good ideas out there. But even he, you know, said, "Look, I don't want the the easy backdoor option because it just opens up a whole Pandora's box of problems." You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's that's my view on that. And I guess with that, we'll we'll move on to Corpus Christi now. And um, so we had another shooting uh, just a couple of days ago. At a military base there, uh, the shooter was identified as Adam Al-Sali. Um, he's uh, an American citizen, but he apparently has links to Syria. 
Um, so what do we know about him? Um, is he has any terrorist group taken uh, credit for this attack, Tom? I haven't seen anybody take credit for this one yet. Of course, it, you know, we, we have to wait and see. Um, this, you know, so far what we have are reports that, you know, on social media, he was, like Al-Shamrani, was very much uh, supportive of AQAP. Um, you know, Rita Katz at Site Intelligence Group, I think, found his account. Yes. They found their found his accounts pretty quickly. I just saw her on Twitter talking about this and was providing a bunch of details. So kudos to them for figuring out what this guy yeah, was doing. Fantastic job laying that all out. Yeah, for, figuring out what this guy was doing. Group, yeah. yeah. If I, when I do our write-up, I'll make sure to cite all this stuff. I'll cite site on all this stuff. Uh, but they, they have, uh, they have a, a bunch of um, – they came up with a bunch of posts that this guy was posting about. You know, was proclaiming his allegiance to AKP. Um, or support for AQAP, including, I think, Ibrahim al-Rabash, a former AQAP theologian, uh, former Gemo detainee who was uh, an ideologue for the group, but others as well. Um, so that's an evolving story. We don't really know much about this right now. Apparently, this one U.S. sailor, I guess, took a bullet, um, had protective gear on, survived, was wounded. But I think she, I think it is a she, I didn't see her name yet, managed to press a button and the protective barrier came up. And so that prevented this guy from going in and, and creating more havoc. So, you know, kudos to her and, and or whoever, yeah. that, whoever that sailor was that did that. That's uh, fantastic. But look, now we have two attacks on naval air stations, first in Pensacola, now in Corpus Christi. Both of them have an AQ angle to them. One we now know was done by an AQAP operative or sleeper agent, according to the group and the FBI. And the other one is done by a guy who was at a minimum supportive of of AQAP and Al-Qaeda. That's not speaking to a group that's dead, is it, Bill? Or decimated? No, it's not. Right. And and look, you know, I mean, again, we don't see a claim. Um, Again, we're recording this. By the time you listen to this, I believe we'll be off three or four days in between. So things can change rapidly in between then that time but look i mean we shouldn't discount aqap links to this right away we don't see evidence of it to be clear but we shouldn't be shocked if we do see evidence of it and um and as we learned in know. pensacola let's actually get the evidence before people are making you know claims about yeah. what, what what you know what these guys are doing you know let's actually see the evidence before we we sort of put a narrative around it you know there's always such a quick uh a desire to say no right not say maybe or, or yeah, it's a, it's, a dis- I mean, it's a disconnect the dots. Yeah. It's, it's one of, so ISIS Islamic State. I, you know, my, my theory is that ISIS Islamic State threw a monkey wrench in the prevailing paradigm. Uh, I'm going to get nerdy for a second. So not that any of the rest of us isn't nerdy, but you know, <laughs> uh, if you if you ever uh, read uh, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, his whole thesis was that basically there are these paradigms that gain hold within scientific fields, and then you know the the paradigm could be wrong for years. Uh, but it takes sort of this moment of overwhelming evidence, this moment of overwhelming truth to bust through and force scientists to create a new paradigm for understanding what they're observing. And we, you know, this happened in, in jihadism. You know, there were some really bad models that have sort of lingered for years when it comes to understanding Al-Qaeda in particular. ISIS sort of broke through and changed that a little bit because there were, people were applying those bad models to ISIS. And then, oops, you know, ISIS really was about building a caliphate and at the same time could pose a threat to the West. And elsewhere around the globe had global a- ambitions. So the disconnected dots paradigm on ISIS, which was it was just sort of a local mafia or local group, which even had the president of the United States, Barack Obama, say at one point, that was the JV of terrorist yeah, groups. That was all busted through, right? I mean, that, you can't return to that paradigm after it's sort of conclusively disproven. But you still see these arguments linger when it comes to Al Qaeda itself, right? You still have these, you still see this stuff out there where Al Qaeda is not really is- is interested in the local game. Well, no, they're very interested in the local game, more so even than the than striking the so-called far enemy but they can they can walk and chew gum at the same time I, they can and you know we've done the u.s side has done a lot to limit them throughout the years for sure 
but I, I continue to worry that we're not able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, that we can't. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. That Tom. We can't. Uh, it's ongoing problem. I mean, we want to pivot, right? And the endless wars, and yet we still have an enemy out there that we're going to that that is committed to. You know, destroying our way of life. Before, I mean, well, before we move on, here's one thing on this because I don't want to oversell the jihadi threat, the terrorist threat, but at the same time, I do think that it's undersold by others. You know, uh, yes. in terms of what it's going on in the U.S. And here's the one point on this before we move on uh, on all this. I think the big question really for me is, you know, has Al-Qaeda have, does Al-Qaeda have the capacity and have they made the decision to try another big attack in the West on civilians? Because if you look now, you look at what happened at the Naval Air Station Pensacola, you think about Charlie Hebdo. Yes, that, Charlie Hebdo was against civilians, but it was a it was very much so a targeted attack to make a political message, a religious message. This wasn't, you know, I always compare Charlie Hebdo attack in January 2015, which was certainly facilitated and executed by AKP. Um, I always compare that. By the way, there was disconnected dots on that too. There were people saying, right oh, away. yeah, right. It was you know, yeah, I was totally wrong on that. Um, but, uh, you know, with the Char- Charlie Hebdo attack in January 2015, I always compare that to the November 2015 attack by ISIS, which was symbolic to a certain extent, sure, by hitting stadiums and hitting the Bataclan Theater and that sort of thing in restaurants. But it was sort of much broader across Paris, whereas the Charlie Hebdo attack was really precisely targeted to go out and, and, and have a political message, a religious message to say we've avenged the prophet and these people who allegedly smeared him. Uh, you know, that was the idea behind it. You're seeing these sort of strikes by Al-Qaeda now, AQAP, but we haven't seen an attempt, a big attempt in the West to do something broader, like on trains or planes or anything in, in some time. We haven't seen a bigger attack in a while. And I think there's an open question about whether or not, when and if they'll make the decision to try that again, because like, we think that they will, right? We know that there's been a stand down order on that. And, and then whether or not they have the capacity to get it through, you know, those are two sort of separate uh, related issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, I go back to Pensacola here, right? Al Shamrani was a was in pilot and training. He could have conducted a very different type of attack, totally. And yet he chooses to do a shooting and target directly target military. I I think that I think you're dead on, Tom. These are targeted attacks, very specific targets for a very specific political message. Whereas the Islamic State was almost doing the Al Qaeda 1.0. I go back to Spain or London or whatever, right, where they're targeting trains and you know, Al Qaeda's kind of gotten away from the let's just go after civilians. Yeah, I mean, well, even 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 9/11 was had a symbolic component of it because they wanted to hit the economic defense and political nerve centers of the United States. So they, they were, for even that, they wanted to send a message with it, you know? Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But I mean, I think what I'm, at least what we're seeing with the, with, I I believe what we're seeing with these Al Qaeda types of attacks it is it's a question a, of scale even more focused than yeah. that right? it's a question yeah, of scale it's a question of scale much more yeah. focused yeah. now the question of scale I mean part with the scale is that of course as you scale it up it becomes much more susceptible to the FBI and others intercepting yes. it because you know even with 9-11 the road to 9-11 which we'll do an episode on that sometime let's just add that to the list of Tom to, list of t- things Tom says we're going to do an episode in the future on <laughs> uh, you know if you're keeping track I don't know we've probably got 25 of those now but uh, you know, but even on the road to 9-11, Al-Qaeda had a lot of stumbles. I mean, you know, sure. Muhammad Al-Qatani stopped in the Orlando airport. You know, Zacharias Massawi, who may or may not have been involved in the, the, the 9-11 plot specifically, but it was certainly involved in either that or a follow-on one, depending on how you look at the evidence. But it was certainly involved in the 9-11 network. Um, you know, he stopped in August. He's arrested in August of 2001. They had a lot of problems. They had a couple of operas who could have been detected when they came to California. Um, Khalid Al-Madar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, I think their names were, uh, you know, these guys all could have been, you know, they had a lot of stumbles. 
Um, and so when you scale up, you do run the risk of, of stumbling, right? But they got through the stumbles that time to pull that off. And I think the big question for me is, you know, we've seen evidence that Ayman al-Zawahiri and al-Qaeda senior leadership had a stand-down order in Syria and elsewhere. There's some rumblings out of Yemen and elsewhere for a big attack. They didn't want a big attack uh, uh, in the West because they were focused on a local gain. They were focused on expanding their footprint post the 2011 Arab uprisings. Um, but the question is they could change that calculation, especially with the coming retreat from Afghanistan, the ongoing retreat from Afghanistan, and other, other political things they could look at the world a little bit differently and try again. And then the question is, do they have the capacity? Yep, no, that's absolutely right, Tom. So um, let's uh, take a look at Afghanistan. So we had the uh, lead inspector general for Operations Freedom Sentinel issue a quarterly report. Um, if you haven't gone to the Long War Journal and re- read Tom's article, it's a Taliban reluctant to publicly break with al-Qaeda and um, inspector general reports. Uh, so I would highly recommend you read it. Tom dissects this uh, with the precision of a surgeon. Um, Tom, talk to us. The, 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 the main takeaway is that the, uh, the inspector general says that the Taliban is reluctantly, reluctant to publicly break its ties with al-Qaeda. Um, tell us why that's interesting and also tell us why there's a lot of logical inconsistencies with that. Well, you know, the thing that we've been tracking for years, Bill, and we've talked about is that um, there's this perverse desire by the American side to put words in the Taliban's mouth. <laughs> so going back to 2013, U.S. officials actually drafted a statement in Muammar's name that was supposed to be a renunciation of terrorism that they wanted the political office of the Taliban in Doha to, to read aloud. Um, so, you know, it, just think about this. The U.S. had to actually craft words for the Taliban to read in this regard because the Taliban wasn't going to do it itself. Nobody told these same officials that Muammar was actually dead at the time and the Taliban was playing weekend at Bernie's with his corpse. And so therefore, you know, basically, even if they had read the statement, it would have been meaningless because it was a dead man's name. But guess what? You know, they didn't even read that statement. So then you, you flash forward to the early this year, February 29th. And we're looking at this agreement that was put forth in Doha was basically the newest attempt to put words in the Taliban's mouth. And of course, that agreement didn't have a specific formal renunciation of al-Qaeda. We've laid out what that would entail. They didn't do that. And now comes along this inspector general's report uh, saying, oh, the Taliban's reluctant to publicly break with al-Qaeda. Well, no, no shit, Sherlock. You know, we've been tracking this for years. And what, why is that, right? So what are they going to do? They're going to privately break with al-Qaeda? How is that going to work? You know, they're going to secret, they're going to be a super, super secret pinky swear in Doha. No, no, we really are going to break with al-Qaeda. We just don't want anybody to know it. I mean, how does this work, you know? And so um, you got to show us something, right? You got to show us some specific facts. And the point, the point, what I took away from the report, first of all, they cited some of our reporting, which we're very thankful for. They cited, including that analysis I did of Al-Qaeda's three-page statement after the Doha deal. This is the February 29th accord between the U.S. and the Taliban. It's a withdrawal agreement. Al-Qaeda comes out and supports it. Uh-oh. You know, <laughs> not, 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 yeah. so, not, not so much of a break, you know. They're, Direct evidence of a break. I mean, yeah. or not. Yeah, not. And um, they come out and support the, support the deal. Uh, you know, and you have uh, other facts cited in the Inspector General's report. They cited the UN report, which we wrote up from earlier in the year, saying that even though Al Qaeda was concerned about Al Qaeda, the Indian subcontinent was concerned about the the quote unquote peace talks, which of course weren't really peace talks. They maintained a close relationship with the, with the Taliban anyway. Uh oh, you know, and um, you had you know evidence in in the report of. Um, they cited the Defense Intelligence Agency along those lines. DIA apparently concluded that AQIS, that's Al-Qaeda Indian subcontinent, still has close ties to the Taliban, which is what I was just citing. And there's other evidence in the report as well. But the bottom line is they're still this far out. You know, we're going on, you know, three months now, uh, 
for, after the deal. There's no evidence, zero evidence of a of any kind of break between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And this this smells and looks like that it was just basically the, the U.S. trying to put words in the Taliban's mouth all over again, right, Bill? Yeah, I I mean. Look, we we knew it was going to be in this agreement before it came out. We knew what it was once it was released. I don't like to, you know, give ourselves a pat on the back, but we caught this thing straight down down the middle. I mean, and it's really frustrating. I got to tell you, the, the, part of our job is part of the big frustra- frustrations that you I know you and I have is being right on this. We couldn't have been more right about this. This is the what does I mean? I'm gonna. I know I'm repeating you here, but what the hell does privately breaking with Al Qaeda look like, Tom? How many attacks has the Taliban conducted on Al Qaeda since this agreement? Yeah, zero, signed? Zippo, right? Not it's right. Remains flat at zero. We we hit and that according, according, according to the UN other pourings, you have several hundred AQIS fighters. You know, none of them have been yep. turned over. None of them have been identified. You know, uh, you know, there's there's no evidence whatsoever this agreement is as meant anything on the ground. It's it's. It's, this is what's perverse about this. The U.S. is now wants to pretend the Taliban is something it isn't, and wants yeah. and wants to and wants to cast that as something it isn't, for no apparent reason, right? I mean, it's all it's all rooted in Taliban apology, really, you know, yeah. basically this absurd view of the Taliban. Yeah, I mean, look, I to me, this is just perfect evidence of of the, that this deal is merely a withdrawal deal. It's cover for the U.S. to leave. Now, while the Al Qaida, the, the but Taliban, but Bill, we could the U.S. could have done that. Oh, oh, we know, yeah, without we know. Lying they want political the Tal- cover. Yeah, without lying on yeah. the Taliban's behalf. That's what's so egregious to us, right? I mean, yeah. you can pull all I, the I, troops out. Just don't lie on the Taliban's behalf on the way out. I mean, what yeah, is that? Yeah, you know, look, you and I have maintained, look, I and I'm going to just state this again. We could have left Afghanistan. If you want to leave, we don't have to, to nope. legitimize and the Empower, Taliban yeah. and whitewash the Taliban's role in, El- in 9-11. We could have done that. Um, far be it for me to stand in, in the face of the will of the president of the United States and, frankly, the American public. So, I mean, I just think we should have been clear about what we're going to leave behind. Instead, we're obfuscating what we're leaving behind. Now, while there's been zero attacks on uh, by the Taliban on al-Qaeda, the Taliban has conducted thousands of attacks against the Afghan government Um since Afghan military and government since this deal was signed on February 29th. Tom, um, and yet the U.S. military is suppressing this attack data. Why? Oh, well, this is just, this is the, this is a beautiful thing that we've covered for years Long War Journal. Yep. So if you want to know why we're critical of Big DOD and some of the, the, some of the U.S. military's actions at times, they'll put out a metric and say, okay, this is key for understanding success in the war. Oops, that metric's not going our way, so we're not going to put it out anymore. Uh, guys, you know, and so they, they put out, they had this enemy initiated attacks was one of the data, data sets they were putting out. They were giving to this, uh, lead inspector general's office. And now they're saying, well, we can't put it out because it's quote unquote, now I'm going to read this. This is ridiculous. It's worth reading. Yeah. Yes. It says, and thank you for putting this in our show notes, Bill, so I don't have to go look for it. But anyway, again, <laughs> for my own piece, but it says, uh, quote unquote, this is sensitive as it was part of ongoing interagency deliberations over whether the Taliban is complying with the terms of the agreement with the United States. What? Everybody knows the Taliban went on the offensive against the Afghan government after the February 29th deal. There's multiple sources on that, multiple ways you can verify that, including their own statements, by the way. Second of all, we can all look at the text of the deal, and there's nothing in that that says the Taliban shouldn't go on the offensive against the Afghan government because they didn't agree to a ceasefire, they didn't agree to a reduction in violence. There's nothing in that about that at all. So we can all see that the Taliban is, A, on the offensive, and B, that's still in compliance with the deal because there was nothing 
um, you know, prohibiting it. So C, why aren't you releasing the data? It doesn't have any any bearing on whether or not they're complying with the deal or not. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous, right, Bill? Absolutely. I, I think if, I mean, look, it wouldn't be perfect, but if you replace sensitive with embarrassing, yeah. I think that statement might make a little Bingo. bit more sense. Bingo. Um, Bingo. That's yeah, a great that's, way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. Exactly. And that's really, this is DOD, when this data doesn't show what it wants to show, it suppresses it. When it embarrasses them, it suppresses it. And look, I was the first one to start tracking district control in Afghanistan. The DOD st- or the U.S. military in Afghanistan started tracking it probably about six months after. Uh, there's a long story behind that that I'm not going to get on here, get into here. But they started doing it after I did it. Uh, I would get calls from colonels in Kabul to ask me what I was doing and how I was doing it. And then all of a sudden they start tracking this data. But <clears throat> and but when they started releasing it, they said this is going to be a metric to show the success in Afghanistan. And as soon as it stopped, it would instead what it started showing, <coughs> excuse me, the military's own data, right? And so keep in mind, it's going to be the rosiest possible assessment consistently showed that the Taliban contested or controlled about 45% of the country. The information, the, the data about one to 2% every, every quarter, it would show a, just a little bit more Taliban control, just a little bit more. It didn't. It showed the exact opposite of one of what they wanted to portray, which was the Taliban was losing ground. And as soon as that that happened, after a couple of years, they cut it off. And then they said, "Ah, uh, well, it's the U.S. military stated, which you would think, you know, again, the U.S. military should be very concerned about what the Taliban controls and contests, particularly if it's running military operations in these areas." It said, "That's not important to us. What's only what's important is the status." of the of the negotiations with the Taliban. After General Nicholson said that it was the key metric. It was actually key exactly. for understanding what was going on. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden, no, no, He's right. it's not the key it metric. It was right, though, Tom. It yeah, was a key metric. And, and, it was that, key to understand In that regard, and then all of a sudden, it's not a key metric anymore. We don't even need to release it. Okay, guys, you know, thanks for that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, more that's more what a lost war. That's what a lost war looks like, right? Yeah. We published an op-ed in the New York Times, what, in 2018, saying this war is lost? 15, 2015, basically. 15, yeah, you're right. God, the time is flying. You know, and this is why. I mean, it's it's a lost war. We just we're just waiting to we're like keeping this corpse, uh, you know, on life support. Well, right hey, look, now. I mean, the only, the only I'll just say one, two other quick things. One, so the U.S. also suppressing the airstrike data in Afghanistan and elsewhere because they don't want to yep. sh- they don't want to show the U.S. has come to the defense of the Afghan forces as they're being attacked by the Taliban. Again, I think that that's something that should be publicly known uh, because again, it shows that the Taliban it, it undermines the central premise of the deal, which we're going to get into in the last segment of this uh, episode which is this idea that there's some political will within the Taliban to reconcile with the Afghan government and sort of share power in some sort of kumbaya moment. Uh, there's no evidence for that zero to this day. A Taliban apologists, and yes, you are Taliban apologists, have tried to pretend otherwise. You know, in a future episode, and again, add this to your list, folks, we are going to do a special episode. I, I have to do it because I'm. I, this is one of the things that gets me fired up, gets you fired up too, I think, Bill. We're going to set the record straight on the period of Taliban-Al-Qaeda relations between 1996 and 2001, and I'm going to eviscerate some of the arguments that are out there in that regard. Uh, and yeah. show you how how comprehensive the evidence set is in that regard of what was going on. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, the U, the U.S. government now doesn't want to put out data that shows that the Taliban kept fighting after February 29th, went on the offensive, and is just using that excess capacity that they no longer have to worry about turning on Western forces because they're happy not to attack the U.S. and its allies as they withdraw. They're taking that excess capacity and just putting it all on the Afghan government. Now, leads one other quick point, which is I think if any, if any, if there's any benefit to all this. 
the Afghan government should now know that they can't count on the Trump administration going forward. That, you know, basically you look at the rhetoric from Secretary Pompeo and Zalmay Khalilzad and others, you know, it's very, uh, you know, basically very favorable toward the Taliban. Oftentimes they're criticizing the Afghan government and not criticizing the Taliban. This is all very curious. The Afghan government now needs to know, you know, this is their, this is their shot to try and get their act together and fight on with the U.S. presumably leaving. And if there's one last shot at it, this is it to try and keep the jihadis at bay. Yeah, they, they, the Afghan government, need, uh, you know, needs to get off the crack cocaine of U.S. dollars and U.S. military support. It's waning. That's gonna it's be, going that's away. It's going to be tough to do, though. We know that. That's part of the we, problem. We know that. But if they if they want to have a chance of survival and, and hanging on to portions of the country, they're going to have to do it and find other allies. It's The U.S. is not a reliable, reliable ally in this regard. Um, it's sad, It's but it's true. They're gonna have to figure. They're gonna have to figure out something. They, and the U.S. part of what we've said in the alternatives of all this is the U.S. should have been negotiating what a security compact with the Afghan government yes. looked as the U.S. was withdrawing troops and supposed to wasting all this time negotiating, legitimizing, empowering, and lying on behalf of the Taliban. You know, none of yeah. that, none of that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, you know, look, I mean, we could discuss what options, but a vigorous U.S. air presence and combat support presence in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, backing the Afghan support forces on the front line, perhaps some consolidation of the Afghan military lines, you know, would have been far better than what we're doing now. So um, we're going to move on to um, Mullah Habiatullah, who's the uh, emir of the Afghan Taliban. He issued a, a, a statement for uh, Eid al-Fitr, which is an Afghan uh, an Islamic holiday. Um, and it basically was uh, just more of the same. Uh, you know, the Taliban are fighting for an Islamic system, the ta- and what they call an Islamic government. Now, who's going to lead that Islamic system or that Islamic government? Of course, the Taliban and its Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That, of course, is the name that the, the Taliban gives its government. Um, and by the know, way, Ab- Ab- Abdul Akhundzada is known as the Emir of the Faithful by the Taliban right. and Al-Qaeda, you know? So what, what is he going to become? A mirror of only some of the faithful in a power sharing yeah. agreement with, with the Afghan government? You know, how's yeah. he going to, he's going to be, he's going to be co-emir of the faithful. He's going to share power with Ghani and Abdullah. Surely you jest, right? I mean, this guy, right. you know, I mean, this guy, this guy is proclaimed as the emir of all believers, folks. So, you know, it's, it's not even, you know, it's not even a title that's sort of, you know, constrained to uh, Afghan borders, really, you know, in terms of title. But so what, he's going to lay down, he's going to say, you know, oh yeah, I'll be the uh, minister for something this or that now in a new Afghan government. It's all absurd, you know? Yeah, the Taliban gets away with this by uh, issuing statements by saying, no, no, our jihad is only constrained to Afghanistan and, um, you know, we're not interested in what happens other other places, except, and this is repeated by spokesmen who then it's um, given as justification by all those apologists out there, and again, you know who you are, um, who, you know, who say, no, the Taliban's just interested in governance and it'll share power. Um, you know, Actually, Bill, let me, let me give you this, Bill. So I'm going to share this with our listeners, right? I heard from a very, very reliable source and friend that a very senior U.S. government official, I can't name, obviously, you know, basically took that view of the Taliban. Oh, you know, all, all they want really is some of our cash, some of our money. They just want, it. They just want our, our aid. They don't really want anything else, you know? And you hear stuff like that come out of senior U.S. government channels. I got to say, I can't, I can't imagine U.S. service members fighting under, you know, this sort of leadership that doesn't even understand what the Taliban is and what they're all about, you know? President Trump himself said that. He said, ah, oh, they're just interested in, yeah. they actually like the American presence because they get the graft off of it. Yeah. Can you, I mean, this is, this is how this, these bad ideas filter upwards because it's, no, you know, one thing I found really kind of 
interesting and funny about this. The Taliban tried to assure, or I'm sorry, Akhanzada, Mohabitullah Akhanzada tried to assure um, Afghan people and, and the West, obviously, the statement's issued in English, so we want us to read it as well. And he says that they, the Taliban is an interesting and monopolizing power. And then he says, all will be given rights under divine Sharia law. Yeah. Well, who's going to enforce that divine Sharia law? Yeah, and this guy— Sharia, of course, is ta- Islamic law. And we all remember what that looked like in, from 96 to 2001. Public stonings, burying women up to their head it's in, in soccer fields, shootings. You know, we all know what that looks like. So he's, he's saying, no, there'd be no monopoly. It's, you're all covered under Sharia law, as it should be. And the Taliban will be the ones enforcing that. Yeah, and do you, do you think Ghani and Abdullah have the same version of Sharia law that Habibullah Khanzada does? You know, I mean, of course not. I mean, not. I mean, would Al Qaeda be endorsing the Taliban and its Islamic Emirate if it produced anything other than a version of Sharia law? Sharia, well, I'm sorry, Sharia or Islamic law that yeah. that is is uh, is in fact um, you know completely consistent with their radical beliefs? No, of course not. They're not going to endorse all that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just. But again, it, but the point is, is that there's been a lot of vested effort in pretending that the Taliban is about something other than. Uh, re- resurrecting Islamic Emirate Afghanistan. Well, you know, that's what they've been fighting for all these years. That's what Al-Qaeda is fighting for all these years. And there's not a hint of evidence of a break between the two since February 29th. You look, the, the apologists will read the part, it won't re- monopolize power, right? That's what they'll take away. Right. And then they discount the rights under, and it's a direct quote. It's funny that they would say divine Sharia law, but that was directly from them because we all know Sharia is Islamic law. So, you know, you got to put the two together, folks. Um, and, and when you go back and read their statement, I mean, th- that I believe it was February 7th, they issued a statement, uh, they issued actually a religious decree or a fatwa stating that the only acceptable outcome is to reestablish Islamic Emirate with Mohabbatullah Gonzada as its emir. They didn't fight for this for nothing um, or to share power. They also issued a statement back in 2016 directly talking about sharing power for some, and this is a quote, a silly ministerial post. Oh, I love that one. You pulled that one. That was a great. That was a great way of just to, you know. That, that's what I. That's what I was indirectly referencing too. What Abdul Aqsa is going to be? What minister of what? You know, minister of yeah, you know. Right. I mean, come on. You know. Yeah, for real. And I mean, look, he his own. He sent his own son out as a suicide bomber in Garesh District in Helmand Province. I believe it was in 2017. He's going to settle, right? I mean, is this what people want to believe? Um, so anyway, an- another uh, interesting thing about, uh, that with this, and it's nothing new. You know, I think I've, I stated at the very beginning, this is more of the same. But uh, he also issued a, uh, a general amnesty for its opponents, right? He did, th- look, the Taliban, he did that in his statement after the withdrawal agreement was signed. It's been in several other statements. But again, you don't I- issue amnesty for someone who or for a group of people that you conduct a, an agreement with. Amnesty well, is going to share power with. defeated. Whether you're going to share power with. Yeah, you don't you have exactly. to grant amnesty to people you're going to have, you know, come together with and, and shake hands, you know, I mean. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, I, these are all the tells, the, the, the continued statements about Islamic system and Islamic government, the divine Sharia law that you'll all be taken care of, of the, you know, well, the, the offers for amnesty. But then again, you don't even need that because they issued that fatwa where they stated again. I'm going to well, go back to that. I mean, look, where it, they stated that the only acceptable outcome is the establishment of Islamic Emirate and and Habibatul yeah, as so as just, its emir. I mean, so like folks, I don't know what you know. 
Taliban officials are whispering in your sweet nothings into your ears. That's like General Miller saying, hey, you promised. You, we, we had a discussion about... Dis, uh, Reducing um, violence by up to 80% in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, well we, that was just maybe what they whispered in your ear. In but Doha. what they're actually doing... In Doha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what they're actually doing is adhering to the agreement. And uh, I hope that irony isn't lost on General Miller, who either is, frankly, a fool or was willingly duped. Well, uh, that's a pretty cheery, I think, way to end this uh, this week's <laughs> episode. I think we can leave it there for this week. This is a shortened episode because uh, it's being recorded on Memorial Day weekend. We hope you guys had a great holiday. You're going to listen to it, hopefully, after the holiday. Uh, we'll be back uh, in the following weeks, of course, with more episodes. We're, we're different episodes dealing with different narratives, different topics. Uh, we're going to line up different guests. But uh, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to shows. I'm Tom Johnson. I'm here again with Bill Rogio. We're both senior fellows at the FDD. That's the Foundation for Defense Democracies. We support their, uh, we're thankful for their support in this podcast and everything else. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.